All right, welcome to another episode of the DC, DC Podcast. Podcast. And uh, we are continuing a series uh, on critical theory. Are you going to be serious for this whole episode? It, am I being serious? I think I'm just tired. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we're, and uh, if you're watching... <laughs> pray for Russell. Yeah, pray, if you're watching us uh, on video, you'll see yeah. we're in a fancy studio. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you like this pallet wood wall behind me? I do. I it's, was up all night making that. Wow. Uh, did you get all the termites out of that wood? <laughs> But in all seriousness, uh, we were in a studio that was, uh, it's part of the church uh, in Madison, Capshaw mm-hmm. Baptist, yeah. that has very graciously allowed mm. us to set up shop here. So yeah. we have this awesome room with squishy egg carton yes. sound buffering and yes. cool decor. Ooh la la. Yeah. yeah. So we th- we are very grateful to them. And yeah. uh, just another example of uh, how the Lord's blessing this podcast. Yeah. And so we'll be here for the foreseeable future. Yeah. If you're listening to this on audio, you have no interest in what I'm talking about. No. And you also won't be able to appreciate the next thing that we're going to highlight. These really cool shirts, these DC podcast t-shirts, mm-hmm. which Danny Orozco. He, he says it just like that. He says it just like that. He, uh, what's the name of his printing company? Lagos Screen Printing. Lagos Screen Printing. He sent us these for free. And he's in Mexico. He's in Mexico. He's one of our viewers from Mexico. And uh, and we have another order coming through him. And we maybe might be planning to give some shirts away for free to some of our viewers, depending on if they can dance like little monkeys like well, we yeah. want them to. We'll, we'll have some swag and maybe a, we'll do like a, a contest or something. Is that what we're becoming now? Are we, are we those... People like share this video twenty times and get a free T-shirt. Never going to do that. Okay, no. just checking. Um, we'll do trivia, maybe. Oh, that'll be fun. Um, yeah, so we're going to continue our series now on critical theory. Right. We did two two episodes already introducing yeah. the topic. Uh, last week we unpacked sort of what is contemporary critical theory at a very high level. Yeah. There's really so much more to say about what critical theory is but yes ten thousand foot view yeah now we're going to be talking about the history of what we call contemporary critical theory yeah in order to understand the history of critical theory you have to understand some not all uh of the history of marxism particularly cultural marxism uh and we'll explain how critical theory and cultural marxism connect at the end of the episode but at the beginning of the episode we're just going to talk about Cultural Marxism. Okay. So before we do that, though, we mm. have to talk about... Um, we are historians. <laughs> before we even do that... Three more steps backwards. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we just have to talk about Marx and, and his vision and what, what Marxism was. And we're not going to talk about that at length. But if you remember in our last episode, we talked about uh, the four key elements. And, and the first element of critical theory is that the whole world is separated up into binaries, yep. right? Okay. And it's the oppressed versus the oppressor, okay? Right. Now, that, that didn't originate with Marx, but it was very much popularized and systematized by Marx and, and Hegel. And they saw that uh, that demarcation, oppressed and oppressor, falling along primarily economic lines, yep. okay? And, and his whole thing was this economic oppression leads to alienation. There are four different kinds of alienation. The labor is alienated from the fruits of his labor, so on and so forth. And this is, this is not the Marx with the little mustache who did black and white comedy. I don't... Groucho Marx? Yeah, this is him. So moving on. Same guy, sorry. No, this was uh, Marx, the, the German who pretended like he wasn't Jewish. That's the, right. The rabid anti-Semite who was actually very much Jewish. That's the okay. guy with the big mustache. That's right. We're on okay. the same page. That's right. Now, one of the things that Marx did was he prophesied 
if I may use that language, uh, and I will because it's a religion, a very violent uprising. Mm -hmm. Okay, now this is opposed to the earlier visions of socialism. Earlier visions of socialism uh, were like, hey, we're going to buy this compound and we're going to come live a perfect life and everybody's going to come and see this life and they're going to be like drawn in like a moth to a flame. So Marx's vision was very much... uh, different than that. Yeah. So these guys thought, oh, everyone's going to love what they see. Marx is like, no, people aren't going to love this. What's going to have to happen is that the proletariat is going to have to rise up and throw off the chains of the bourgeoisie. Okay? And here's the thing. Marx was wrong. So the inevitable course of history, in, in Marx's view... The dialectic, right? Ultimately, yeah. this revolution is going to happen. The proletariat's going to seize control of the means of production. Yeah. It'll, it'll, everything will... Upside down world. That's right. And even in his own lifetime you see in some of his writings where he is wondering why it didn't happen. Okay. And he wasn't just wrong about the uprising. He was wrong about everything. <laughs> okay. Uh, and that, that's what leads us into the next uh, important character in, in the development of critical theory, uh, beginning with cultural Marxism is this guy named Antonio Gramsci, not Gramsci. Gramsci is his name. And he was a, a young socialist from Italy. Uh, you want to tell your little story? He was a hunchback. <laughs> he, he was a hunchback. I don't know why I feel like bringing that up. It's very, it's pertinent. The hunchback he, of... He, he fell downstairs. It, Italy. In he, Italy. <laughs> as a, yeah, as a young man, he was injured and he, he never really fully recovered and he had yeah. health problems and he had a hunchback. Yeah, the hunchback of... Just want to uh, give you some visuals to go, right. to go with this. Now, he came, uh, he was a socialist and he did a lot of stuff that socialists do in, in Italy. Uh, and he was doing it at the time when fascism... Uh, came came to power in that country, and he ended up being seen as a very serious threat to the state. And mm-hmm. in 1926, he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned for eight years, and then after he got out, uh, he died uh, three years later. Okay, so he got out in 1934. He died in 1937, if I if I got that right. Now, uh, what's really important is not what he did before he was imprisoned, or even what he did when he was after after when he got out. What's important is what he did while he was in prison. He had a lot of free time on his hands, okay? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that old Antonio the Hunchback did while he was locked away in the dungeon was ask himself, why has this failed? Because Marx is obviously right, don't yeah. you know? You know, Marx is obviously right. But how can he be right and this whole thing not do what it's supposed to do? And so uh, a lot of his writings were collected after his death and they came to be called the prison notebooks. Now, why is this guy so important? Well, first of all, let me just say, I forgot this, it's very important. What's funny is he was asking the question, why has Marxism failed? And he hadn't even begun to see the ways that Marxism has failed. I mean, he, he just saw the very tip of the iceberg. If he would have got to live a hundred more years, man, he would have been asking a lot more questions. He probably would have abandoned Well, it, well he, shared, he was a Marxist. Yeah. He shared the goals of Marx. And he he decided that the problem was fundamentally one of strategy. Yeah, that's right. So that's what that's what brings us to our next point regarding his writings is that Marx he thought that culture was downstream from the economy. You know, yeah. he saw everything through this financial lens, right? Yeah. This economic lens. But Gramsci says, no, actually, <laughs> maybe seven years into a sentence, you know, he's like, you know, I think that that's wrong. And so he flips it on his head and he says. If you have all these systems and values and institutions in place, this hegemony, that's number two from last Mm -hmm. episode, okay? If you have this hegemony in place, it doesn't matter what you do economically until you replace that hegemony, okay? So so the workers, they're not going to join this uh, this violent uprising against the oppressive class because they've sort of been 
blinded and, and brainwashed yeah. by the capitalist Christian culture they live in. That's right. To not see their oppression. They're too connected to the church. Their sustenance is too related to the capitalist mechanism. Yep. The nuclear family is too bound up with their sense of identity and, and all these other things. Right. Um, and, uh, and Gramsci's main beef was with a Christian hegemony that was still latent throughout Europe. And he said that in order for Marxism to really work, you have to destroy that hegemony. And uh, one author, John Fulton, he put it like this, and I thought it's pretty succinct and helpful. He says, unless and until Western culture is de-Christianized, Western society will never be de-capitalized. Mm. Okay? So now we get to another important question, Russell. How do we tear down the Christian hegemony? You tell me. Well, if I was... <laughs> if, if you I was, were a hunchback? If I was a neo-Marxist who mm-hmm. wanted to destroy the West... Uh, I'd start with their children and their supple little minds. Ooh, that's very interesting. And what else would you do? I'd probably go after all of their academic institutions and then probably mm. their entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then what eventually else? into their politics. Yeah, man. And yeah. then once everyone has, has had uh, all of the, the hegemony of Christian capitalist society and the Protestant work ethic and the family stripped from yeah. their conscience... Uh, and that's just been, it's just rubble. Well, yeah. now we can rebuild. That's right. That, which you just described, is what Antonio Gramsci called the long march through the institutions of power. So he envisioned an army of Marxist intellectuals colonizing and controlling the key cultural, see cultural Marxism here, see what we're mm-hmm. doing? The key cultural institutions of society. Let me give you a direct quote from Gramsci, okay? Okay. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media, churches, defending confirmed podcast, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. Now, listen... Uh, when I first started digging into this stuff a number of years ago, I heard some people making, saying some good things and, and issuing some fair warnings, but they said some stuff that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. They talked about like the Marxist infiltration and the way since mm-hmm. the 1960s, the Marxists have been infiltrating the universities to try to brainwash the, the, the future generations of people. And I just thought, you know, that's not helpful. That's just... Yeah. We don't need that kind of conspiracy theory stuff. Right. That's some. That's like the grandparent chain email in all caps <laughs> that gets sent around. <laughs> Wake up, America. The socialists are invading. <laughs> uh, but no, those people were actually right. When you read the actual source material of these people, and there's more people that we're going to talk about, you see that, no, that Gramsci used the word infiltrate. That's yeah. not your crazy grandma. It's, it's not a conspiracy of everybody's out in the open broadcasting it in their published work. <laughs> yeah, it's that's not right. a secret. This They're is like, here's our plan. Literally what they've been trying to do <laughs> yes. since the mid 20th century. Yeah. So guys that I that I uh, scolded privately in my head when I was paying attention to your stuff, I, I repent. Okay, you were right. This is part of the plan. Okay, so how significant is Gramsci? Well, in cultural studies, which critical theory is, uh, he may be the most influential thinker besides Marx, maybe another guy named Marcuse that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Um, so that's all we have to say about Gramsci for mm-hmm. now. Now, what you need to know is that simultaneously to him doing his work in prison, there was something else called the Frankfurt School. Okay. Um, real quick, before we talk about that, it's important to know that Gramsci's idea and what comes out of the Frank- Frankfurt School, these weren't eureka moments Mm -hmm. you know uh this this questioning of why isn't marxism working was in the air of intellectualism in europe 
around this time. And this was a time of, of pretty profound pessimism yeah. in, in the Western world as a whole. Yeah. I mean, the, the First World War had ended. Yeah. Uh, it was a bloodbath. Uh, the Second <laughs> World War was in progress. Yeah. Uh, you, you just had the, the sort of the, the, the hope of progress and scientific enlightenment and all these wonderful things as we came into the 20th century has just been... Uh, basically weaponized. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the Great Depression. I mean, there's so much that they're they're looking around trying to figure out. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're obviously not going to say that uh, socialism is the problem, right? right? So they're trying to figure it out. And, you know, uh, at the same time that Gramsci's doing this, we have the formation of the Frankfurt School. Now, what you should know is that one of the head guys from the Frankfurt School, one of the leading figures there, he actually did some work with Gramsci earlier in the career. It's possible that, you know, they collaborated and they both had similar ideas and they pollinated. went down... Pollinated, that's right. They went down different paths. Okay, so uh, there was this dude named Max... Horkheimer. <laughs> Am I pronouncing that right? How's my German? <laughs> Say it without laughing. Okay. Max Horkheimer. Here we go. Horkheimer. No, I can't do it. Christopher, Christoph Waltz, we need you. Here we go. Um, he got, um, this is this is like a drunk history, okay? I'm giving you the, like, the straight up, like guys who were like college professors would just loathe what I'm about to do. But there was this dude named Max Horkheimer, and he got a bunch of other Marxist dudes together to form a Marxist think tank at the University of Goethe, which is G-O-E-T-H-E, Goethe, obviously, yeah. uh, at Frankfurt, Germany. And, and they did a lot of stuff in Germany that nobody really paid any attention to. A lot of Freud study, a lot of other weird stuff going on there. But back to my earlier point about how it's difficult to pin down the history of ideas. Mm -hmm. Somebody may say, well, Sean, you're not talking anything about Freud. Okay, Freud was a massive influence at the Frankfurt School, but that doesn't change what I'm about to say. Well, okay. And also, just not to make this longer than it already is. No, I don't mind. These guys, these guys were not ideologically unified themselves. That's right. They were not a monolith. Uh, and if you've read anything from this time period, this, this world of postmodernism, is is well known for guys, particularly in Germany in the mid 20th century, writing these voluminous works that are so profoundly controversial and, and yeah. nearly impossible to understand. <laughs> That's right. And so you have then decades of people yeah. trying to interpret these guys. Everybody from Marx Horkheimer was the king of it. To das Marx Kapital. to yeah. to Karl Popper. You have all yeah. these guys who have now there's entire courses and colleges on trying to figure out what they meant. I know. So it, it is a complex study. It is, and they they traded in obscurity. You know, it was like a it was like your Boy Scout badge. You know, <laughs> how difficult was it to read that one? <laughs> really difficult. He's brilliant. Nailed it. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so in 1933, the Nazis came to power, and most of the Frankfurt School had to jump jump ship because they were all Jewish, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, a large portion of these guys, they ended up spending some time in Geneva. Geneva, you've got a weird history. Uh, but they spent some time in Geneva, but then a lot of them ended up in America, okay? They ended up at Columbia University, where they founded uh, the Institute for Socialism Research, no, it's the Institute for Social Research, but it was basically the Institute for Socialism Research. And uh, now eventually a couple of these guys went back to Germany. You know, they, they couldn't quite get too comfortable and not enough, not enough sausage here in America. You know, they wanted to, they wanted to go back to Germany. That's what it is. <laughs> the beer is just not the same. Uh, but one of the head honchos of the Frankfurt School, Herbert Marcuse, he stuck around in America and he was a professor at prestigious schools like uh, Columbia University, but also Harvard, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, he wrote a book called The Eros of Civilization. Eros of Civilization. Now, uh, this book was one... Now, this is how some of critical theory, which we're going to come back to in a minute, uh, developed along the lines of sexual liberation. Remember, oppressed oppressor, right? Yep. Well, we said that the thing about critical theory is it, it doesn't... 
it's not one single thing. It right. gloms on to other things. So it can glom onto a racial issue. Right. It can glom onto a sexual issue. It can glom onto economic issues. It, it's, it's that's the, three gloms. That's a lot of gloms. It's the moral foundation. It's part of that hegemony that's oppressing you. Yeah, that's right. And that includes sexual mores. Yeah. Sexual ethics. That's right. So so he he kind of took the lead in many ways along the se- lines of sexual ethics. And uh, Eros and Civilization was like one of the, the key texts. It was like desiring God in the evangelical world for a bunch of, you know, loose hippies. Okay. Can I say that? Well, you did. I did. So, And we will never be broadcast on uh, American <laughs> Family Radio. No, that's right. Now, uh, this book may be single-handedly responsible for the work of what happened at the Frankfurt School going mainstream mm-hmm. in America. Because like I said, a lot of what they did in Germany just wasn't, nobody was really paying attention to it. But they were able to gain some ground in America in the 60s during the sexual revolution, particularly through guys like Marcuse in this book. And it's a it's a bit of a backdoor entry, if you will, into uh, the American system. So um, Marcuse was also the leading critic of classically liberal views of tolerance. For example, I'm just giving you an example. So you're like, okay, well, what does the Frankfurt School have to do with this stuff? Well, let me just give you another example, okay? Uh, how would you define tolerance, Russell, along classically liberal lines? I don't mean liberalism yes. left. I mean classic liberalism. So classic liberalism would define tolerance as a willingness to bear with opinions and people who you disagree with. Yeah, that's right. So Mark Hughes says no. <laughs> he says that's actually intolerance. Okay, what you're doing is your view of tolerance and free speech and all that stuff, they're just, sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Just tools of oppression, okay? It's, so two, two things there. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. No, you're fine. Number one, it is fascinating to see that the redefinition of terms has been a tool in critical theory as far back as the mid-20th century. Yeah. Uh, it's also fascinating that it was the sexual revolution that was sort of the key that unlocked the door for this stuff in the United States. Right. I, I think that's telling. I'm going to yeah. speculate a little, but I okay. I think that a, a portion of that is because when you, when you look at all the ways that critical theory would say we're oppressed, yeah. And then you try and bring that to one of the most prosperous and free countries in the world. <laughs> right. You're not going to get a lot of momentum. Right. But when you offer sexual sin, yeah. which is at least gratifying in a fleeting and, and, and fleshly way, yeah. as sort of the reward for jumping in board, on board with this ideology, it, it, it's like a drug. Yeah. And I think that's exactly why it took off. Yeah. And the university systems, which are basically just massive brothels where sometimes you have to write a paper. You know what I'm saying? It, ma- it makes perfect sense. So uh, he, he says that any view of tolerance that allowed the wrong view... Now, Russell, who defines wrong? Hmm. Hmm. Any view of tolerance that allows the wrong view to persist is actually a form of oppression. Therefore, advocating for strong forms of censorship and even pre-censorship... That guy looks like he might say something wrong. It's called, uh, a, it's called a thought crime. That's uh, Orwell, anyone? Yeah. Make Orwell history again, amen? Uh, he, uh, he says that uh, that kind of censorship is actually tolerance. He says that's liberating tolerance. See, now right. we're back to the right. oppressed oppressor. And then point number four, right? Yep. The, the ultimate aim of everything is social justice. It's, it's liberation, okay? So let me just give you an example from his own pen. Go for it. Can I? You may. Man, thank you, dude. He says, certain things cannot be said. Certain ideas cannot be expressed. Certain policies cannot be proposed. Certain behavior cannot be permitted without making tolerance an instrument for the continuation of servitude. Words are violence. That's right. Silence is violence. Yep. Hate speech. Yep. All of these concepts and phrases have their 
ontology, their yeah. source, is yeah. in this train of thought. That's right. Yeah, and he's not necessarily the author of it, but he certainly he's, perpetuated. He, he does it. not stand alone. That's right. But he, yeah, he popularized it. Yeah. Now, uh, he was one of the most radical members of the Frankfurt School. Uh, one of the things that happened a little bit later was that, like, uh, another guy from the school, Adorno, and a couple other guys, they, uh, the liberals always eat their young, and I'm now I'm using liberal as an epithet. They, they, the leftists always eat their young, and what happened is a lot of the students that feasted on this Frankfurt stuff ended up attacking these guys they they had like protests in their office they were like basically kidnapping them and adorno he's like call the police these people are oppressing me yeah. i need capitalist help right it's amazing how history repeats itself it's, uh, it's crazy and we'll get more as to why that happens in in, in future episodes in future, well, yeah. in future pages here oh, okay so, yeah. all right yeah uh and marcus is like no that's great let them this is this is what has to happen right. you have to crack a couple eggs in order yeah. to make an omelet right this is the uprising okay um but here's what you need to know. Marcus, other guys from the Frankfurt School, they were the architects of the new left, mm -hmm. okay? A small army of people nurtured in critical theory in the university systems of the 1960s and 70s, 80s. 90s comes next. 90s. Yep. They went on to become politicians, media figures, activists, educators, the, the long march through the institutions of the culture worked. Now, how successful it has been remains to be seen. The fact that we're able to sit here and have this conversation means it has not absolutely won the day. Right. Because somebody would have to come and liberate <laughs> us from this viewpoint. From our intolerance. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by the way, Marcus, um, I just... Just to tell you how influential he is, okay? In in the Paris uprisings, uprisings of the students in 1968, uh, a lot of the students there carried signs that that had Marx, Mao, and Marcus on them, okay? So the the three M's of of Marxism, okay? So he was very important, very mm -hmm. influential, very widely read, uh, and still is to this day, okay? So how does all of this fit into critical theory? Right, so we we said okay, we need to, in order to understand critical theory, you have to understand Marxism, and then you have to understand how it evolved into cultural Marxism. Where does critical theory fit into this? Well, critical theory is kind of like the wrecking ball of cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism says we have to accomplish the revolution through cultural means first, uh, and how you do that is critical theory. So in one sense, in Resolution 9 that passed at the SPC two years ago, where they talked about things like this as tools, in one sense, they're right. But in another very important sense, it doesn't matter. It's a tool that's inextricably connected to a completely morally bankrupt, evil worldview and and uh, and and it's just essentially negative in nature. Tra traditional theory, which is in contrast to critical theory, traditional theory just aims to understand the world, right? Sociologists go in and they go, oh, the way those people do. Yeah, let me yep. take notes. Like the like the guy in the jungle that's just watching. Yeah, he doesn't step on the flowers, doesn't help the animal survive yeah. when it falls in the quicksand. <laughs> that's right. This is where my mind is. No, okay, that's good. I like because it because he's just watching nature. He doesn't want to interfere. Yeah, that's right. And 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 it's difficult to do that, right? And but it's a it's one way to approach things. Mm -hmm. In contrast to that, we have critical theory, which says, no, I don't want to do that at all. I want to undermine yeah. society. Traditional theory looks at society, tries to understand it, describe it, explain it. Critical theory says, no, we want to undermine society. Tenant number four from last week. Okay. Yep. Uh, 
it is, as many of the architects of critical theory readily admit, fundamentally a negative discipline. What do I mean by that, Russell? Uh, it, it's negative in that it has very pessimistic, harsh critiques of yeah. the way things are. Yeah. It doesn't really offer any solutions. And when it, you say it doesn't really, you mean it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. And, and it, it, but it points to this sort of utopian ideal it very does. vaguely. Uh, but nothing practical. Yeah, it's, very vaguely. It is, yeah, it, it is a tool with a very singular and very powerful purpose. Yeah. And it's not a multi-tool. No, not a good old-fashioned Swiss Army knife. That's right. Marcuse, again, may I? From his pen? Go ahead. Very good pen. Uh, on the negative nature and hopelessness of critical theory. He says, I love that he's just honest about it. He says, the critical theory of society possesses no concepts which would bridge the gap between the present and its future. That's a heck of a thing to say, man. There's nothing in this that can help you bridge the gap of oppression to the future where you think that people are liberated from that oppression. It doesn't offer that. Holding no promise, not even a little bit, and showing no success, it remains negative. Now, that's not something that a, a, a right-leaning critic of critical theory said about critical theory. That's what one of the architects of critical theory says. And he says, thus, it wants to remain loyal to those who, without hope, have given and give their life to the great refusal. So what he's saying is that it's built into the very nature of critical theory to cling to the idea of oppression, to mm -hmm. cling to the idea of the revolution, to cling to this, uh, this, this, this binary dynamic that we talked about last time. Marcuse said that. That's not a right winger. So, so when I say that, cr that critical theory, cultural Marxism, is, is a disruptive and destructive social force. Right. I am accurately representing the views of critical theorists themselves. Yeah, and people who would say, uh, dude, you just misunderstand it. Uh, no, I just... I, it's like when people say, well, I don't agree with your interpretation of that text. Well, I just read the just text. Just literally read the Bible. I just read it out loud. <laughs> I didn't interpret it at all. Right. Uh, and, you know... Uh, I think I think even if you were to like I didn't rip that out of context, you know what I'm saying? No, that, you didn't. No, and there's 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 an abundance of that kind of material. So, critical theory like other ideas, it has morphed and mutated with time. So, traditional criti critical theory which grew out of the Frankfurt school, like a twisted and ugly butterfly. I was hoping you were going to do the third tree coming analogy. out of its cocoon. I was going to say like a deformed tree that grew up out of the ground. No. Ethan? Keep going. Anyways, yeah, it has morphed and mutated with time, and that's why people try to make a distinction between classic uh, classic critical theory and contemporary critical theory, and they want to say, well, critical race theory isn't the same thing as traditional critical theory, and uh, like queer, critical queer theory is not the same thing. Or, or, or critical theory of all stripes is not Marxism. That's right. Because traditional Marxism has a totally inverted view of history and the forces of history driving revolution. That's right. And to that, I just want to say, yeah, I know a dog isn't a wolf, but it is. Well, and you know what I'm saying? And those who will make that argument are generally not even satisfied with calling these things neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism, right. which is ironic because I, I don't know that they would have such an issue with calling... Uh, white guys with shaved heads in Arkansas who have swastika tattoos on their chests, neo-Nazis. Right, even though they're They've never very lived, dissimilar to Never German lived in Nazis. Germany. None right. of them are blonde and blue-eyed. No German nationalism. Right. But we call them neo-Nazis. That's because right. Because these ideas do evolve over time. That's right. They all come from the same seed. Keep going. That's the, <laughs> uh, one more thing I want to say about this. Uh, there's no faceless cabal of... <laughs> 
cultural Marxist, right? So one of the ways that I think is unhelpful that certain people talk about cultural Marxism is like there's like a backroom gathering and there's like a snack table. You know, there's hummus and they, everybody's got their hoods on and like, you know, get, get you a snack before we go into this long it's, meeting. It's all vegan snacks. It's all vegan snacks because we're going to destroy the patriarchy before yeah. the night is over, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's not like that. And, and conservatives are often guilty of speaking like it is. I know. But and it's, it's just it's just not that way. I mean, but we don't need to we don't need to imagine these these conspiracy theories with these Soviet operators in right. academia and Hollywood because it's so transparent. That's right. They've been saying this since day one. It's right. kind of like when people used to talk about like Jay Z being like the arm of the Illuminati, and I would just be like, um, and Kanye West. It's like if well, you just listen to his music, it's self evidently demonic. He's not. <laughs> if that were true, he's not really trying to hide anything. You know. We'll debate that later. But. Yeah, that's right. So, so, anyways, cultural Marxists, most of them are very upfront and open about what their aims are. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who haven't been influenced by it that aren't unwittingly propagating these ideas or pollinating these ideas out there in the culture. That's certainly happening. Uh, but there's a big difference between unwittingly doing something and being part of like a secret shadowy organization. So friends, just know that most of this is just alive and well. Nobody even blinks at it in the university system when professors teach on it or students talk about it. That's right. The It's it's to the point where the leaders of Black Lives Matter, and Black Lives Do Matter, but the, the organization Black Lives Matter, when they came out recently and said, we are trained Marxists, they felt like they could do that because... There's just no reason to hide it. And, and what did that do to their public image? It I probably helped them. Yeah, honestly. It, yeah. Did, it did nothing negative. All the conservatives were like, oh, we knew it. Told it's you. Like, yeah, but you could have just seen that anyway. Just gone to their website. Yeah. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. <laughs> honestly, uh, you can go to their website and look at all their core tenets, and you can find them in Marx's 10 planks of, of, of the revolution. So. Yeah. Well, that wraps it up. I think so. I think this has been helpful. So we we did the history of critical theory yep. uh, today. And then next episode will be, do we're, we know? I think we're going to be critiquing critical, critiquing theory. critical theory. Critiquing critical theory. Critically criticizing mm. critical, critical theory. theory. Nice. Uh, and I just have a feeling that's not going to happen in one episode. It, it may not. Yeah. This we We were ambitious thinking this would be done in six. Yeah, I think so. And you so, knew that. You said that. But it's going to get exciting, so buckle up. Uh, yeah. If you've been listening to these three, you're probably waiting. I mean, I feel like I've been chomping at the bit a little bit. Yeah, to, uh, <laughs> just dive in there. So yeah, we're going we're gonna to criticize critical theory. Yeah. Uh, be praying for us. Please do. You know, um, what we're doing, just in the, with this podcast in general, mm -hmm. is inviting spiritual warfare. It's inviting uh, emotional and spiritual baggage and stress. And uh, both of us have lives to live outside of this podcast, and we are totally fallible human beings, and we need to be lifted up with all the prayer that you can can muster. So, Amen. Yeah. Thanks, all right. All right. That's it. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys.